What is it that pleases God? Is being financially well off a sign of God's favor? Are full church services and public worship what pleases God? Where does how we treat each other fit in? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran with Bible 805, where you learn to know, trust, and apply the Bible. The questions we ask today are the same ones God's people were asking in the Old Testament, and the answers God gave them then apply to us now, as we'll see in our lesson, Ancient Prophets, Modern Messages, How the Lives of Old Testament Prophets Apply to Us. Some things change, but many stay the same. In ancient Israel as now, our calling is to be God's people, to represent Him, to be His hands and feet in our world. But what does that mean in practice? And how do we get distracted from doing what we are called to do? What can bring us back to where we should be? And on a more serious note, what are the consequences if we don't obey? The Old Testament prophets can help us answer these questions. Today we have God's complete word to guide us. Back then, it was still being written by his prophets. And though some things have changed since then, God's expectations really haven't. As we go through the prophets and the remaining history of the Old Testament, we will find situations that are very similar to ours, and we can learn from the prophets and the people back then how we should live today. In each upcoming lesson, I'll talk about the history and the setting of each prophet, and as always, give you contemporary applications and lessons we can learn from them. To start, remember the primary role of the prophets was to be covenant enforcement mediators. That's what Gordon and Fee, the Bible scholars, tell us was their primary job. Now, this is incredibly important because the covenant Israel had with God determined their identity and blessing. God gave the people his covenant when they came out of Egypt at Sinai, starting with the Ten Commandments and the many other laws. They were to worship, obey, and represent Jehovah God, and if they did, God would bless and protect them. Along with promised blessings, they were promised punishment if they did not obey. And this is really important to remember, because it wasn't only the good things that were promised, God said there will also be bad consequences if you don't obey, and that was just as surely promised. The prophets were sent to remind people of this agreement, and the rest of the Old Testament is a combination of the history of what happened and the messages of the prophets when people didn't do what God wanted them to do and then the consequences of what happened after that. Remember, these messages were to God's people. It can't be emphasized enough that in all these books and throughout the teachings of the prophets, the people consider themselves religious. These are not messages just to the world at large, to people who don't know God. It seems to be part of the heart of what it means to be human to worship, but who and what we worship will be reflected in our actions. Because they didn't worship the true God in the way he told them to worship him and live as he commanded, the prophets were sent to remind them. 
We need to be careful because this same thing, saying that we know God but not living like it, can happen to us today. This verse reminds us of it, where it says in Titus 1.16, in Paul's describing the people of his day, but I think it's a really scary verse because it can also describe us today where it says, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. We don't want to be people like that and our study of the prophets and what they tell us about how God wants us to live will help prevent the disconnect between what we say we believe and how we live. I want to just briefly talk about the political and physical settings for the prophets. Remember, our Bible has maps, real places that refer to history that you can visit today. Many, many religions do not have that, and that's why it is so important. Our history is tangible, it's touchable. You can go to these places. Israel and Judah, remember, had been one kingdom from the time they left Egypt through the leadership of Joshua, Judges, Saul, David, and to the time of Solomon. This was a total of around 488 years. The kingdom divided after Solomon's time into the southern kingdom of Judah. Its capital was Jerusalem. There, The kings that ruled from then on were all from David's line, and David's line was kept intact until Jesus was born. The kings, some were good, some were evil, but God kept his promise to David, and they continued. The northern kingdom was called Israel, and eventually its capital became Samaria. I'll talk about how that came about in just a little bit. The kings from there were always evil. There was not one dynastic line. There was constant fighting. Uh, One group of people would be in charge for maybe a father, a son, maybe just one person, maybe down to, I think the most was four generations. But it was just a constant evil, constant fighting. And again, Israel was never an independent nation after the Assyrian defeat. Now, the smaller nations that are mentioned in the prophets are really important to keep in mind also. Now, I'm going to start at the north and go clockwise around Israel. So, sort of picture that. The first one to the north was Amram, Damascus. Now, Assyria was even to the north and the east of them. Now, what's interesting about this, in addition to they constantly fought with Israel, is their language was Aramaic, which um, we don't know exactly why, but that actually became the universal language over the entire area even down to the time, to New Testament times, and some people even speak it today. Aramaic, the language of this nation, is what Jesus spoke and in his everyday speaking. Um, if you saw the movie The Passion of the Christ, it was in Aramaic. Now then, if you continue on down south, first you have the nation of Ammon, and then Moab. These were descendants from Lot, Abraham's nephew, and they again constantly fought against Israel, constantly were arguing with them. To the south is Edom. These were the descendants of Esau. And remember Jacob and Esau were the children of Isaac. Uh, Jacob went on to be the founder of the Israelite nation, and then Edom was always 
always fighting. Uh, they were always against each other, just constant problems throughout all of their history. And then if you sort of turn back up north again along the coast, you have the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines uh, were a seafaring people, and they were actually the home of the judges. And this was a problem uh, from the time Gath, uh, Goliath of Gath, that, that David fought, uh, was was uh, from this area. And even today, there are still problems with Israel. This is where Gaza is. And so these are the, sur- the nations that surrounded Israel. And you will often find them mentioned in the prophetic books. Then there were larger world powers of the time that we need to talk about. Egypt is the first one. (laughs) Egypt is kind of interesting in their relationship with Israel. It was a foe where sometimes they would, uh, the pharaohs would actually come up and control the land for some time. A lot of times they just would run over it to, to try to conquer someone else or there would be big battles in the area. Sometimes it was an ally. It was almost always though a temptation. It's kind of interesting. Remember way back even in the time of Abraham when there was a famine in the land, he runs to Egypt. Um, Later on, of course, the children of Israel settle in Egypt for 400 years. Um, Jesus and his family fled to Egypt when when he was was being when um, when Herod was killing the infants. So it's it's got a kind of an interesting relationship with Israel. Sometimes, though, God said, "Don't always be looking to them for help," and it could be a real temptation, a real problem, and you will find it talked about a lot in the prophets. Assyria was to the north. They were extraordinarily brutal. I've talked about this before. They were the ones that God sent Jonah to, and um, even though they repented for a time, they went back on it very quickly, and they just they were into conquering and killing and pillaging, and they just weren't very nice people. But eventually, they were conquered by Babylon. And Babylon then turns around and conquers Judah and held the people captive for 70 years. Babylon, unlike Assyria and Egypt, didn't last very long as an international power because they were soon conquered by Media and Persia. And they are the ones that then actually allowed Cyrus, the king there, allowed the Jews to return to the land. Then the entire area, all, everything, (laughs) Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Media, Persia, everything, everything was conquered by Alexander the Great during the time between the Old and New Testaments. After he dies, the land is split between his generals and local rulers. There's lots of war, things change hands, all sorts of fighting, until, of course, the rise of Rome. And then that will take us into the New Testament. Now, back to the history of the nation. The kingdom splits under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. God had already decreed that the nation of Israel would split because of Solomon's sins of idolatry. But Rehoboam was still responsible for his actions, and he acted foolishly by refusing to lighten the burdens of the people. Now, an important lesson here. God determines overall history, but individuals are still responsible for their actions, no matter what the circumstances. Some acquit themselves quite well during times of intense personal and national trial. We see that with Daniel and his friends in upcoming lessons. God honors that and is with them. He blesses them and throughout history they're known as godly people in very trying times. Some do not though and God judges them. 
Victim or victor, you always have a choice, no matter how challenging your circumstances. Now, back to the history that prompted God's calling the prophets. After the split between Israel and Judah, Jeroboam, who God made the ruler of Israel, could have had a lasting dynasty. He could have had many blessings, but instead of trusting God, here's what he did. In 2 Kings 12, it tells us, Then Jeroboam said to himself, Now the kingdom may well revert to the house of David. If this people continues to go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, the heart of this people will turn again to their master, King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Jeroboam of Judah. In response to this unfounded fear, here's what he did. He sets up golden calves in Bethel and Dan. It says in First Kings 12 again, So the king made two calves of gold. He said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Hear your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one at Bethel and before the other as far as Dan. He also made houses on high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not Levites. Jeroboam appointed a festival on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the festival that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. This set a terrible precedent. He sets up his own religion with his own idols, priests, and parties. We innately want to worship, and if it isn't the true God, it will be a dreadful substitute. The kingdom previously split as judgment for idolatry, and Jeroboam didn't learn from that lesson. He didn't trust God to keep what God had given him. When God gives you something, a work, a calling, trust him to carry it out, no matter how scary it might be. Jeroboam was judged for this, and his family was ultimately wiped out. History following often refers to others, quote, as committing the sins of Jeroboam. It's so sad, because instead of being the founder of a dynasty, he became the example of sinful failures. Now, an overview of his of the history that followed. This is what happened, and this is the setting where the two major prophets appeared. First of all, there is a series of evil and relatively inconsequential kings that followed Jeroboam. Nabab, Baasha, Elam, Zimri. We know little about them except their sins and the deaths that are recorded about them. Then a rather interesting group appears. This was called the Omeride dynasty. It started with Omri, then his son Ahab, then Isaiah, and then Jehoram. This is interesting. They are interesting because they founded the capital city of Samaria and because Ahab was one of the most sinful of Israel's kings. And he is the one that sets up the situation for one of the most powerful prophets of all time, Elijah. Now, what started this dynasty, though, a little interesting side note here, here, is the founding of the capital city of Israel, which was Samaria. And it says in 1 Kings 16, In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, 
Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned twelve years, six of them in Terza. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria, after Shemer, the name of the former owner of the hill. Samaria, though it was conquered later, continued as a city throughout the New Testament times, and it still exists today. And if you look at the video, you can see ruins of the palace there. A little bit of a, again, a little bit of a parenthesis here, but I think this is really important. We all know the story of the Samaritan woman in the New Testament. Always the teachers will say, now the Jews hated the Samaritans, but they don't tell you why they hated the Samaritans. That always bothered me. Here's how that animosity came about. In 2 Kings 17.22, it says, The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence, as he had warned through all his servants the prophets. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Now here's where it gets interesting. The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cuthath, Ava, Hamath, Sephardim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns. If you study the history of Assyria, that's what they would do. They would break up national groups because they didn't want too many of them in one place because they thought they could rebel. So they would they took most of the Israelites in one place and then they brought in other people. But it goes on and it said, when they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. So he sent lions among them and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of the country requires. He sent lions among them, which are killing them off because the people do not know what he requires. Then the king of Assyria gave this order, have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. So one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled and set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. They worshiped the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worshiped the Lord, but they also served their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations they, from which they had been brought. They were of mixed races and even more mixed religions. This practice started hundreds of years and hundreds of years previous to the time of Jesus and continued until his time. This is why they were hated and avoided by the Jews around them. The Jews around them considered themselves the only true worshipers of God. And in truth, the Samaritans did not worship Jehovah God in the same way. But what I think is so neat when you look at this whole story and how they had been literally used and abused and forgotten about by their different leaders. And by the way, the only reason the king of Assyria wanted to take care of them is Assyria lived off the taxes and the tribute from their conquered people. That's why they wanted them to um, live well and prosper so they could pay their taxes. But regardless, the Jews hated them. And instead of wanting 
hoping to share the knowledge of the true God with them, they just avoided them. But God didn't forget about them, and neither did Jesus. It was no accident that he decided to take that trip to Samaria to stop by the well and to share the message of salvation with the Samaritan woman. Application. No group is too far gone for the gospel. Don't be afraid to share with anyone. No group, no neighborhood, no family, no whatever. God can always reach them with his love and with his salvation. Back to the Old Testament. King Ahab marries Jezebel. He becomes king. He reigns in Israel for 22 years. And it says in 1 Kings 16 that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. He also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings before him. Now God's response to the evil of Ahab and Jezebel is Elijah bursts on the scene. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. And it didn't rain. Now a showdown occurs at the end of three years, but let me give you some background on Baal, because he is most often the pagan in God, Israel turns to from here on, and it helps to understand why this particular challenge is so important. Baal was the Canaanite god of storms and of thunder. The Ugaritic records that have a, that tell us the most about all this show him as a weather god. He had particular power, they thought, over lightning, wind, rain, and fertility. These things, of course, were very important to an agrarian people. Asherah, his consort, was also a fertility goddess. So once again, rain, fertility, prosperity. This is what the people wanted. This is what they thought they would get from worshiping these idols. A lack of rain was a direct challenge to the power of this quote-unquote God. The priests of Baal praying when they confronted Elijah, that wasn't the only time they gathered and prayed and sought their God, Baal, for rain. That is what he was supposed to be providing them. So after three years, it's time for a showdown. The showdown occurs between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. All the people are called to witness it. The 400 prophets of Baal versus one prophet of God. Well, there's no contest. Though the prophets of Baal jump around and cut themselves and do all kinds of things, they were their God was supposed to light a fire and light a sacrifice. Of course, nothing happens. And Elijah, he and he alone prays to God, God answers by fire, consumes the offering, and the 400 prophets of Baal are killed. Rain arrives as the ultimate victory of Jehovah God over Baal. Now, what was the result? Would Elijah then lead a great revival? Sadly, no. Jezebel threatens him. Now, I have quite a bit to say on this because it's really important. He runs for his life. He takes refuge in the mountains. He thinks he's the only one who serves God. 
God gives him work to do. Part of that was to appoint Elisha, the prophet who would succeed him. And God also reminds him when he's going, it's me, it's only me, everybody else has abandoned you. God says to him, incidentally, there are 7,000 men in Israel who have never bowed to Baal nor kissed him. You think you're the only one? You aren't application. God is doing so many things, so much we know nothing about. Don't ever think you're the only one because you aren't. Just because you don't see it, just because you don't know what's happening, that doesn't mean God isn't at work. Now, I got to thinking about it, and I could be totally wrong in this, but again, like after Jonah walking away from the victory in Nineveh, what might have happened if Elijah had stayed around to instruct the people after God's demonstration of power. We know that after a great victory, this anybody that's been in ministry, even a little victory, any kind of thing that you do, um, you're exhausted after you have really done something for God. I know any of us who, who teach, I, I teach on Sundays, and, and after I do a lesson, um, I teach for about 45 minutes at a time. I have my overheads, and I have my, you know, um, not my overheads, that, that sure dates me. I have my PowerPoint presentation, and I'm all, you know, I'm coordinating that, and I'm speaking, and I'm answering questions afterwards, and, and all of that sort of thing. I am just absolutely exhausted, and we know this kind of of thing will happen. So an application for all of us is we need to prepare to be exhausted. We need to prepare. There's always a spiritual letdown. And I have found that seldom do people who've really been working for the Lord, do they feel good after they've done something that objectively probably is really good? Almost always we beat ourselves up. Oh, I could have done this. I should have done that. Why didn't I do this? Why didn't I do that? We can't let that kind of exhaustion get to us. Plan ahead, rest, and prepare to finish the entire work you've been called to do. Don't run away just because you're tired and exhausted. Maybe for a little time to rest, but get back into the battle. Some final words about Elijah. He's considered one of the greatest prophets in Israel, and he was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. John the Baptist is often compared to him, but At the same time, now listen to this carefully. This is super important. The Bible reminds us in James, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. (sighs) Did you catch that? He was just one person, one person. He prayed and God did extraordinary things because it's never about us, but about God that great works are accomplished. And a really super important application here is I feel that many people get into kind of a sad thing of when there's an important prayer request, they try to get lots and lots and lots of people to pray. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. People need to pray. We join together, and that way we can all praise God. But God does not keep score on how many people are praying to see if he's going to answer or not. It only took one man praying by himself to accomplish one of the greatest miracles of biblical history. In your life, 
in your world, with your nation, with your family, with whatever situation you are in, it only takes one of you praying one prayer, praying to God honestly and sincerely, and knowing that it's His will that you pray that. Only one of you can change and move the heart and mind of God. So remember that. Your prayers matter as much as Elijah's did. They are as powerful as his, not because of you, but because you have the same God. Elisha, the prophet, followed Elijah. It gets a little bit confusing on their names. He was a great prophet. He led a school of prophets. He did many miracles, often to individuals. He raised a woman's son from the dead. He increased the oil of a widow so she and her son could sell it and have something to live on. There is a great story of how he heals the general from Syria, Naaman, of his leprosy. He tells him, just go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. And Naaman didn't want to do it. He wanted something great and fantastic fantastic done and Elisha just and he didn't even Elisha didn't even come out and meet him he just sends his prophet and says go do this Naaman almost didn't do it but his soldiers convinced him to he did this very simple thing and God healed him so a lesson of course from that is very simple obedience can greatly demonstrate God's power one of my favorite favorite stories though about Elisha they're at war with Aram this the area north of them and the um, the armies of the king of Aram surround the city that Elisha and his his servant are in and his servant is absolutely terrified because one of the people that the uh, king really wants to kill is Elisha because he keeps prophesying against him and warning troops where he'll be and all this kind of thing. So there are thousands of chariots and they're you know, fighting at the city walls. The servant is terrified and Elisha just says to him, don't be afraid. The prophet answers, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's reality. There are chariots of fire. There are angels surrounding you where you are in your battles. You may not be able to see them, but they're there. Remember, this is true. That is reality. Now, we aren't told the entire story of the prophets, and there are many prophets that are only mentioned briefly. We don't even know their names. We are told, though, what God wants us to learn about his dealings and his people. And in all of this, we must remember, God is in charge of the destinies of individuals and nations. And we see that in these stories. God can do big, grandiose things, splitting the nations, the prophets of Baal battle, the victories for Israel over their enemies, and miracles for individuals, the widow's oil, raising a dead son, healing a pagan general. A few final thoughts and applications. God has given us his word. The people in the Old Testament had the earlier written covenant, the five books of Moses, and the words of the prophet. Our common application is that in various ways, from God's written word, the prophets then, and teachers now, we know what God wants us to do.
Circumstances will always be challenging. There will always be war, disease, famine. That's, it's been that way from the earliest of days until the end of days. Problems will always be there. And even more dangerous, there will be times of prosperity. In fact, Israel, through much of its history, was rich and prosperous. And as you'll see in the prophets, that's, those are the times when they most often turned away from God. That is when God was particularly angry with them. But no matter what, in plenty or need, circumstances never absolve us of God's requirements for obedience as his chosen and loved people. And as his representatives, our responsibility never quits, as this verse reminds us in Philippians 1.27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. We aren't alone in trying to learn what it means and to live it out, to live out our calling from God. The prophets will help us understand what God wants and help us know how to live as his representatives. In, we'll look at their historical settings, but you'll see that many of them are very similar to the challenges that we have in our world today. We may never do the miracles they did or preach with the power of the prophets, but by our behavior and actions, may we all be what our Lord wants us to be. May we be worthy representatives in this sad world to remind them that knowing God and following His commands is the way to true joy and peace forever. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format and the other materials at www.bible805.com. And until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.